because we have a strong and perfect plea, we can come boldly to our good God and Father. He wants us to come and make our requests to him. So if you would, bow with me now as we pray a prayer of petition asking for God's help in our church. Pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you for welcoming us, your people, into your presence to bring our needs to you. We thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Father, as we come together today, we ask for your work among us, your people. Father, we ask that you would work in your church to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would help us as we live this week to be faithful in what we do and what we spend our time on, where we give our energy. May we honor you in how we live this week. Father, as many men and women in this room go out into workplaces each day, Father, we pray that we would be salt and light to those around us. Father, we pray this morning for Lauren Timbechian as he serves with the sheriff's department. Father, we pray that he would use his authority as a sergeant and as he leads the, the 14 or 15 under him, that he would lead them well, and that he would honor you with each relationship he has at work. Father, we pray for Bob Lutz as he works and leads at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Father, would you give our brother Bob wisdom and grace in his speech as he relates to those who are above him and those who he leads under him. May he be a blessing in that university. Father, we pray for David Yurzar as he finishes his work on his PhD and, and then looks for new work. Father, would you guide and provide for David? Father, would you lead him and Shannon to where he can serve next and where he can work in his next job? Father, for our brother Craig Douglas, as his between jobs, we pray that you would provide for Craig. We pray that you would even provide this week, that you would open doors for him. Father, we pray that you would help Craig to grow in godliness through this transition. May he grow closer to you, even as he is between jobs, we pray. Father, for all of us this week, may we honor you. May we serve, not considering ourselves to be the greatest, but to be, consider ourselves to be the least. Father, we pray not only for our church, but we would together right now intercede for other churches around us. Father, this morning we pray for Lake Osborne Presbyterian Church. Despite any differences, we thank you that that, that church is so clear on the gospel and that they so clearly want to shape their church according to your word and that we can have confidence that even right now, your word is being explained very similarly to what we're doing here in this service. Thank you for those brothers and sisters, oh God. We pray that you would bless that church. We pray that they would grow up in godliness. Father, that there would be more churches in our area that would be growing according to your word. 
shaping themselves according to what we see in your word. Oh God, do that in us too now, we pray. As we open to Luke and we read more of how Christ worked and taught, oh Lord, would you show us Christ again? Would you, would you show us our own inadequacies and our need of Christ? God, would you transform our church even now, even in this service we pray? In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, it's summer, and many in our congregation are traveling these weeks. Online, one particular journey caught my attention and the attention of uh, many major news outlets this week. Uh, a video went viral of a man named Phil Stringer. Maybe you saw it. Phil was delayed for his American Airlines flight for 18 hours. And everyone else in the flight eventually gave up waiting for the flight, except for Phil. He waited it out to see if he could get aboard his flight. Eventually he did. When he boarded, no other passengers were on the plane. But American Airlines still flew Phil by himself to his destination, alone. I wonder how often your journeys would just go smoother without dozens of other passengers on your plane with you. Well, in today's passage in the book of Luke, we come to a, a turning point in the book where Jesus uh, sets out on a journey himself. If you brought your Bibles, and I hope you have, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 9. We'll be working through the passage that David just read for us. Jesus has been showing his authority through different miracles, and, and here, in this passage in the book, uh, the book shifts as Jesus begins to, to teach in the second half of the book. He also travels. He sets out on a journey. Look down, just jump with me down to verse 51. Just notice this pivotal verse in this section of the book. We read in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, from, from this point on, over the coming chapters, we'll actually see regular of this, this journey that Jesus is making to Jerusalem. Jesus is making a journey to his death. But unlike Phil Stringer on that solo airplane flight, Jesus has companions. The next several passages are filled with Jesus journeying and, and teaching his travel companions, and today's passage shows us just how badly his travel companions need to be taught. On this journey, the disciples seem to regularly provide obstacles for Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, but Jesus won't be dissuaded. So, so let's look today at the, the obstacles brought up by these disciples. In this one passage, we're going to see five times that the disciples just they miss the point. They, they, misunderstanding in what, they misunderstand what Jesus is doing as he heads towards Jerusalem and what Jesus' ministry is all about. Five times, Jesus must correct them and show them how to think rightly about what he's doing. 
Jesus travels his coming death, and we see here his disciples need to be taught. And we, we need to be taught. So let's, let's look at this passage and see if we can relate to the disciples. So the first obstacle there in our text, number one, faithlessness. Faithlessness. The passage begins with this story that we just heard of this demon-possessed child in verses 37 through 43. This is, by the way, directly following the glorious transfiguration of Jesus Christ that we saw last week as a church. This episode happens the next day, Luke tells us. The man brought uh, a, another demon-possessed person to Christ. He brought his son. This is, by the way, the sixth time that Luke is telling us that Jesus is casting out the unclean spirits and having power over these demons. And, and now, in the eyes of this man, in his testimony, this situation is just dire. Look at verse 38 and see how it builds. The man says, he is my only child. And a spirit seizes him. He suddenly cries out. It convulses him. He foams at the mouth. It shatters him. That is, it literally breaks my child. And it will hardly leave him. Now, the significance of this situation is great. And it's, it's no wonder that the disciples seem to focus on just how bad this demon was. Problem climaxes is in verse 40, where the man says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, now we know from the context, from the beginning of the chapter, that the disciples, the apostles, had been given authority by Jesus himself to cast out demons. But here, they can't. So what's the problem? Jesus will, in a moment, heal this child. But in verse 42, he, we see that he heals the child with no problem. Even in the midst of another attack, the, the child comes and the demon convulses him again. But the main point, the, the central focus of this story is the obstacle that Jesus faces. See, the biggest problem is not the control of the demon. The biggest problem in this story is the unbelief of the disciples. Look at verse 41. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Jesus calls out their faithlessness. He speaks of the generation. Uh, this is language that compares the disciples to the generation of those who were faithless in the wilderness. Notice he's just worn out. It's almost like he's exasperated by their unbelief. And now, this isn't any inappropriate impatience on our Savior's part. No, this is righteous indignation at the disciples' unbelief. Interestingly, elsewhere we see that Jesus seems to never tire from people coming to him with their sin, regardless of how shameful it is. But here, not trusting his authority, not having faith in his power to help, well, that provokes righteous anger for Jesus. So why did Jesus, well, what did Jesus call them? He said, you are this faithless generation. 
But notice he also said, you're faithless and twisted. Now that, that just caught my eye this week. Why would Jesus call the disciples twisted? What is he thinking of here? Now, this word twisted interestingly means to turn away from, to divert away from something. So catch what is happening. The disciples had just come down from where? Just come down from the mountain. They'd just seen this, this glorious transfiguration of Jesus Christ in all his glory and splendor. They'd seen his power. In fact, the last several chapters had been all about the authority of Jesus to handle any kind of power in front of him. And how quickly now they were diverted away from remembering that. Oh, church, when we look away from the glory of Christ, unbelief is not far behind. This demon-possessed child was truly in an overwhelming situation. When, when the troubles of this world are bigger than Christ in our mind's eye, faithlessness sets in. We're, we're twisted. We're turned away from seeing Christ in his supreme glory and power. I wonder, what about you? How often do you, do you come to church on, on Sunday morning, perhaps, and behold Christ's glory again? And then by Monday afternoon, you find yourself at the bottom of the mountain, struggling with little faith. Aren't we just like these disciples? I would suggest, by the way, any sin that you struggle with this week, at its root, is a mix of these two things, faithlessness and being twisted, not believing in Christ's power, and being diverted away from seeing Christ's beauty. That's what sin is. So, for example, if, if you are here and you just think, think of any sin you struggle with, if you struggle with anxiety, you're failing to remember the power and beauty of Jesus Christ in that moment. If you struggle with discontentment with what you have, you're failing to remember the, the beautiful sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Or, or if you struggle with greed or, or stinginess, you're failing to remember who Christ is and his beauty. This is why we must regularly come back as a church and behold Christ's glory afresh. Seeing Christ is the antidote to our faithlessness, to our twisted hearts that turn away from his glory. And that's what happens next. Notice Jesus heals the boy in verse 42 with a mere rebuke. And then notice Luke tells us how this short section ends in verse 43. They were all astonished at the majesty of God. Even in his frustration, at their unbelief, Jesus is still kind to show them his glory, his, his majesty once again. He returns our gaze back to God's glory. Uh, a second obstacle for, for the disciples, number two, dullness, dullness. Now, now, admittedly, I'm actually grabbing this word from the teaching of Pastor John Fulmer. Uh, he was helpful for me this week as I was thinking through the shape of this passage. But what, what we see next is how the disciples were, they were dull. They were slow to understand. They misunderstood what Jesus is all about. Look at verse 43 and following. 
We, we read there, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So here, in the light of their marveling, Jesus clarifies his mission again. The Son of Man, Jesus, the, the, the one who was prophesied for centuries ago, the Son of Man, he is about to be delivered into the hands of man. He's referring here, of course, to where he's headed in Jerusalem, to where his coming death is, where he will be handed over. He's recently, if you remember, warned his disciples about his coming death. And as we see here, he's clearly setting his sights on it. His ministry is culminating in the cross. First point, and let me just pause here. This should be true of us as well. We should be known first and foremost as those who are gospel-centered people. We see the cross of Christ as his great accomplished for us. And we don't, we don't move on from that. We stay centered on that. And it, it shapes who we are and it shapes how we obey because we can't get away from seeing that central work of Jesus for us. It shapes our church. Jesus came and lived, Scripture says, so that he could die. That was the purpose he was driving toward in his life. He died and rose again so that we could be reconciled to God. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of, of how all of us are naturally apart from God, separated from God in our sin, in our rebellion against him. And yet God in his kindness sent Christ to reconcile man to God, to bear the punishment of our sin so that if we will believe not in what we do, if we will rest not in our own works, but in what he's already accomplished, oh, all of his righteousness will be given to us. Jesus is focused on this task, this work that he is headed to Jerusalem to do. His life is cross-centered. And so he says, don't miss this. Let these words sink into your ears. Let it, let it get to your brain, he's saying. Catch it. This is what I'm headed for. I'm headed to be delivered into the hands of men. But it's exactly what happened. They missed it. The words didn't sink into their ears. Verse 45, we see it emphasized by Luke three times. They didn't understand. It was concealed from them. They did not perceive it. You see, these travel companions couldn't even see the road in front of them. This would not be true forever. Jesus, would, God would one day open the eyes of the disciples, but here we see uh, this picture of dullness, of, of missing the very center of who Jesus is and what he's doing. Friends, I think what, what we have here is a picture of what's true for all of us. For all of us, the, the plain truths of the gospel are not understood by us naturally. We, we have an echo here of what theologians call uh, total depravity or utter depravity. 
Scripture teaches that our minds have been darkened by sin. We can't comprehend the things of how God is working on our own. Like the disciples, they are concealed to us until God opens our eyes. So just this morning, as a, as a, as a note of praise in your heart, if you see Christ as beautiful, if you believe in this good gospel, if you see that this is true and you, you're resting in that, well, friend, God has given you that sight. He has, he has opened your eyes. He has let you see this. He's overcome your dullness. He has changed what you naturally love and what you naturally serve, what, what your natural impulses are, your understanding. He is reshaping you from the inside out. This is exactly what he'll do for the disciples in the story, in their story over the coming chapters and books. Well, the journey continues. The disciples now are, are in the back seat of the car, as it were, and once again missing the point. A third obstacle in following Christ, pride. Pride. Look at verse 46 and following. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put it by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you is the one who is great. I, I wonder if you can, you can picture this among the disciples. Somewhere along their journey, these, these students of Jesus kind of go off to the side, and, and they're arguing amongst themselves, who's really the great one? Who's really number one of the twelve here? Uh, perhaps they were comparing stories as to who was closest to Jesus or who found him first. Or which one of it, us was it that went up on the mountain? Which one did he pick? They were playing the, the, the comparison game. Uh, it, it's petty, really. But don't pretend that you don't do this, too. How often does your heart run to evaluate your standard of how you're doing and who you are in comparison with others. How often in, in some back corner of your mind, perhaps almost unintentionally, do you compare yourself to others to find your sense of value, to find your sense of greatness, of, of satisfaction? At least I'm not as bad as this person. Or did you notice that? At least I did that, right? That's what our hearts say, isn't it? What area is it for you? I, I think you'll be helped so much if you can just be honest with yourself. Where is your, your heart, just the back crevices of your mind, tempted towards similar reasoning of greatness? Uh, how long you've been a church member? How, how well you know the Bible? How well people respect you? Or, or how much work you do? How sincere you are? How great your kids are turning out? How patient you are? How kind you are with others. Many things, good things. What is it for you where you find yourself setting up yourself as better than others in the performance of your mind? What we're doing when we do this is exactly what the disciples were doing here. We are evaluating ourselves not in relation to Christ, 
but in relation to other sinners. When we play this game, look what happens in verse 47. We read there, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, it seems that they weren't even uh, speaking that Jesus could overhear them here. Jesus knew their hearts. He could look and see this is what they're thinking. This is kind of how they're reasoning about their own greatness. And so even before they spoke, Jesus knew. He didn't need to overhear them. He knew, he knew their very reasoning. He knew the very logic patterns that were happening there for them placing all their value in the wrong places. Friends, let me remind you, Jesus Christ knows the reasoning of your heart, even before you speak. He knows it even better than you know it, quite honestly. If you would be embarrassed to just openly admit before others, I actually think I'm better than you because, and say it, well, then you should actually know that Jesus sees that pride even before it's spoken. Jesus knows your heart. All right, so here's just a, a radical idea, just a, a practical application to help put your pride to death this week in your heart. Find a friend and confess, verbally acknowledge how pride reasons for you in your heart. Just try putting words to that to that ugly thought that's in the, the corner of your mind. and Admit it out loud to someone. Admit what Jesus already knows. With a friend or maybe with a spouse tonight, maybe you could try saying something like this. You know, sometimes I actually think that I'm better than someone else because I do this. And, and put words to it. Acknowledge it. Fill in the blank. Put it to death. Jesus helps us with this pride by, by using a child as an object lesson. Children in Judaism would have been lowly. Uh, a child under 12 would have been traditionally too young to teach the Torah. And so Jesus here is picking a part of the society that isn't especially highly valued. Now, certainly what he says about the value of children should shape our value and our value of children's ministry. So things like our Sunday school or our children's discipleship hour or our preschool or our Wednesday Awana ministry. All of these, by the way, need more volunteers if you want to sign up for any of them. But the, the point here is not primarily about children. That's not primarily what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is using the child as an illustration to emphasize a lowly position. So, I don't know, perhaps in our day you could think of a homeless person sleeping on the front steps of our church. Or perhaps you could think of an ignored elderly person who's just all but forgotten in some nearby nursing home. Jesus is saying, your ability to set aside your own greatness and accept a lowly person, well, that shows your ability to accept me. Your ability to accept me shows your ability to accept God himself. Who wouldn't want to receive God, the Father who sent Jesus? 
Jesus calls us to set aside our greatness. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. By the way, if you find yourself thinking too much in general about yourself and your significance, a wonderful book that has helped me is Tim Keller's The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Uh, it's short. It's one of those books that's on my reading list uh, each year. Just try to work through it. It's like a mere 40 pages. It's super helpful for helping you think of yourself less. I've got about five or six copies of this. I'm going to be at that door after the service. If you'll read it, come by, and I'll just gift you a copy for free. All right? But before our next point, I just want to point out one brief thing here that we're seeing about the disciples. And that is that notice with each of these obstacles— just how unimpressive the, the disciples are being shown to be. They are looking dull. They are looking selfless. They are looking powerless. Now, if, if you're here today as a skeptic about Christianity, if you're here today as a skeptic about what this book is saying, and you're not sure that you believe it, I, I wonder, what would you say... It, it, it's about the founders of this book showing themselves in this light. Notice the, the very people that founded the church, who, who carried out the commands of Christ, are some of the ones that look worst in the book. Now, I've spent a good bit of my life studying other religions. Man-made religions love to make their founders look good in their deeds and what they say. But not so in these stories. These stories are filled with these disciples, these leaders of the church, looking just pretty horrible. It's almost as if they eventually discovered that they weren't the great ones in the story. Well, let's keep moving. Uh, number four, another blunder, rivalry. Rivalry. Uh, the disciples were not only saddled with hearts of pride, but they, were, they had the distraction of rivalry. Look at verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So, so Jesus had just taught on children, and he had widened the standard of who is to be welcomed. And it seems here John is testing Jesus' logic. Somebody else had been casting out demons, using the name of Christ, but he wasn't following Jesus. He wasn't in their entourage. Shouldn't Jesus be concerned about this? It's interesting. I listened to someone who noted that this is the very thing that at the beginning of the passage, the disciples themselves couldn't do. They couldn't cast someone out. But here, this other person who's not in their group is casting out demons. Well, Jesus responds and he says, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. I, I think that Jesus here sees the heart of John. Certainly later in Luke, uh, Jesus will teach that false teachers should be stopped, should be called out. We'll see places where Jesus just very loudly calls out those who look good in their presentation of the gospel— but whose lives have no integrity. But, but here, the issue is not false teaching, but it's, it's of simple rivalry. I think Jesus is 
here modeling what historically Christians have referred to as Christian charity. Jonathan Edwards, in his helpful book, Charity and Its Fruits, explains that Christian charity is the opposite of a severely critical spirit. Christian charity is a disposition to think the best of others that the case will allow. He teases this out for us. He says, how often when the truth fully comes out, do, do things appear far better concerning others than at first when we were ready to judge? There are always two sides to every story. It's generally wise and safe and charitable to take the best. And so here, Jesus expects charity from his disciples. Uh, the one who is not against you is for you. Or as one commentator remarks, interpersonal rivalry is not a trait of a true disciple. So let me just pause here. First Baptist, let me just apply this to us. As I think about the life of our church, I just wonder how we think about other churches here in South Florida. In the, in the midst of our clear convictions, nothing wrong with that, how do we look out and, and think about other gospel-preaching churches in our area? When you think of Family Church, just down the road, or Journey Church, or The Avenue, or other gospel-faithful churches in the area, is there any rivalry in your heart? Is there any tendency to think that we are the ones that are right? We rightly model what we're doing here as a church and forget to be thankful for other churches which confess the same gospel that we do. Church, as your pastor, at times I worry that we could be at risk of a similar rivalry to what we see here in the disciples. A, a superiority to how we think about what we're doing in comparison to others. As, as someone once put it, a helpful question for us to ask would be to say, if God were to do a great work in Palm Beach County, and a work of, of many people coming to genuine faith and, and growing in Christ, if he were to do this, and he were to do it at another church down the road, would our hearts be ready to rejoice and praise God for that? I hope so. You know, this is, by the way, just one reason why often in my prayer petition, I, I want to be praying for other churches. Not because I think that I perfectly agree with everything they're doing, but because, the thi as I've heard it said, the things that we share with them, the most important things, are far more common than the things that we disagree with. They're, they're far more important, and that is the gospel and the authority of Scripture and who Christ is. Oh, let us put to death rivalry in our hearts. Let us put to death any, any sense of superiority that thinks that we are the ones that have it figured out and not those other churches or those other Christians. Let us be the charitable type of Christians that want to see God's word and God's glory lifted high, despite whoever God would use. May God give us charity 
not rivalry. Well, a final obstacle the disciples faced, retaliation. Look at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent out messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and went on to another village. Here we find not just those who were doing other good works, but here we find some that have actually wronged Jesus, that have rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus is rejected by these Samaritans. His messengers went to prepare a place for them, and uh, they were turned away. So James and John respond, wondering if they should bring down retribution on this village. This, by the way, is interesting. Notice verse 54. They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This is actually Old Testament language, very reminiscent of Elijah in 2 Kings, who did rain down fire on other Samaritan men. Judgment has a right place in Scripture. But this isn't the time or place. Oh, no. Jesus will one day come as judge. Uh, Those who reject him one day will be punished. Uh, But first, this time that Jesus came, he is coming as a gracious Savior. This time, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is here with these Samaritans, beginning with rejection. The exact same place it will end when he gets to Jerusalem. More rejection. These disciples had the wrong focus. And so James and John, who elsewhere we read are the sons of thunder, wanted to bring down lightning. Jesus merely rebukes them. His face is set to Jerusalem. His face is set to where he will be rejected and killed. Suffering, not judgment, is the order of the day. Laying down his life first, not taking up the sword, is what his first coming was all about. He will will come again to, to judge the living and the dead. He promises that, but first, here he will die and freely offer grace to anyone who will receive him. Oh, dear friends, when we are wronged, how often is our response retaliation? How often is the hope of our heart that others will suffer or, or see their wrong clearly and visibly, that, that, that they will get what's coming to them? And in the meantime, we forget that we have not got what is coming to us. The future judgment of Jesus Christ at his second coming should bring us great freedom here. Jesus will one day right all wrongs. And if we are in Christ, we are the fortunate ones who do not get what we deserve. 
Oh, so our posture, our heart should be one of grace where we are hoping others will not get what they deserve. We pray for our enemies. We don't seek their judgment. We don't seek their suffering now. Retaliation. Well, we should conclude. Jesus here is headed to Jerusalem. He's off on the journey. We're going to go with him. I wonder if you noticed, as I walked through each of these obstacles, just how Jesus is really, in his life and ministry, he's the perfect mirror inverse of what the disciples are doing here. In each of these ways that the disciples missed the point, they, they were the worst travel companions you could have. Jesus, throughout his life, perfectly does the opposite. Think of how great our God is. The, the disciples were powerless in unbelief. They were twisted away from seeing and being focused on God's glory. Who is Jesus? He is the one that is powerful, <laughs> with full eyes fixed on the glory of the Father. He doesn't divert from seeing and savoring and displaying that glory for one moment. The disciples were dull. They were missing the point of Christ's coming death. Oh, but Jesus, he was focused on that death. He was, he was headed to Jerusalem with crystal clarity about what he was going to do. He would not be dissuaded. The disciples argued about who was the greatest. Jesus was headed to a cross to become the least, to, to, to fulfill what his own verse teaching speaks of. He was the one who is least among all of them, and yet is the one who is great. The disciples were distracted by rivalry. Jesus would display perfect charity. Has he not to you? Has he not given you grace upon grace? The disciples, they were tempted to wrath. Rain down fire. Jesus Christ kept moving forward to absorb the wrath on our behalf. Oh, how glorious he is, is he not? Beloved, how great is our God. Would you pray with us? Almighty God, we praise you for the greatness of our King. We thank you that in the face of our inability, in the face of our sin, in, in the face of our incompetence, that Jesus Christ is the perfect one, the one who died on our behalf, the one who is glorious, the one who shows us the Father. Father, we pray that you would shape us, that you would make us into the image of Jesus Christ this week. We pray this in his name. Amen.